Okay, we're in Daniel. I really debated if we should stop at chapter 6 because this book becomes a whole different thing starting in chapter 7 as if you were here last week, you see. Um, we're stepping into what scholars call apocalyptic literature. And even that term itself is a bit intimidating. Um, but ap apocalyptic... It simply means this. It, me it simply means to unveil or to reveal something that is in the future. And the way that apocalyptic literature is done in Scripture most of the time is a bit of a frustration to the Western mind. Because the Western mind loves to make sense of reality through truth through propositions, uh, definitions, points, subpoints, uh, but the Middle Eastern mind, the way the Bible does it, is it likes to do, especially make sense of realities that are so awesome and great that can't be reduced to a simple definition through, through these dramatic pictures and images, dragons and beasts and monsters. And, and, and so it's, it's more like we're in a children's storybook uh, in these chapters. So that's just to prepare you a little bit for what we're to read. Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel 8. If you have a Bible like mine, it's 727. We love to stand for the reading of God's Word, so if that's something you can do, please stand. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. After the one that already appeared to me, which is the one that we looked at last week in Daniel 7. Now in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Alam. And in the vision, I was beside the Ule Canal. And I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal. The horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. And I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, the north, the south. No animal could stand against it. None could rescue it from its power. And it did as it, as it pleased, and it became great. And as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And it came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in great rage. And I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, and shattering its two horns. And the ram was powerless to stand against it. And the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. And none could rescue the ram from its power. And the goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn. It started small, but it grew in power to the south and to the east, and toward that beautiful land. That beautiful land is Israel. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw down some of the starry hosts from the earth, and it trampled on them. And it set itself up as, as the prince of the army of the Lord, and it took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down because of rebellion. The Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. And when I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to, 
said to him, How long? How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, the trampling of the underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, It'll take 22,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, Pastor, tell us what this means. (laughs) One of the things that a lot of uh, interpreters make the mistake of doing is we want to know what this means for us. We want to run this to our world. Before asking the more important question, what did this mean to Daniel? What did this mean to the original audience? What did this mean to God's people in this time? And I can confidently say right now that the future meaning of this text is history for us. As is a lot of the apocalyptic literature. That includes much of Revelation. What, what in Revelation is is prophecy, is future to those seven churches, we are now looking back on that as history. Um, Of course, not the last three chapters of Revelation. But anyway, uh, first what we need to do is just find our place in the biblical story. And and when you come to the book of Daniel, the narrative is shattered. It's, It's at a dead end. Because the narrative from the perspective of of God's people at this particular time is this. God's people knew some amazing things. They knew that God picked them, called them to be his special people, to to have this special relationship with with God himself where God put his love and affection on them in in special ways um, and, and, and Part of this, too, is putting them in a special place, a special land, where God says, I'm going to have my own house amongst your houses. I'm going to live among you. And and, in all of this, God's people in God's place was for the specific purpose to partner with God to reclaim and restore a broken world. And now God's people are literally removed from that land. And the house that symbolized God's raw presence among them is destroyed. And Daniel 1 to 6 is here to tell God's people whose world has been turned upside down, he's saying, trust me, I have this in the palm of my hands. Everything is going according to my plans and purposes. Everything. And even where you are, as as my people, you're, you're right where I want you to be. I want you in Babylon. I want you to love me here. I want you to live for me here. I want you to partner with me here. I want you to put me on display uh, for Babylon and the whole world to know who I am. And yes, there's going to be furnaces and and there's going to be lion's dens. But know this, Israel, I'm with you. I'm not going to forsake you. That's what it meant to them. What does that mean to us, Daniel 1 to 6? 
same thing. Our mission is still the same. God picked us. God's called us to be his people in his world, partnering with God to put him on display for the world to know who God is. And we're going to have our own furnaces, and we're going to have our own lion's den, and we're going to have our own trials, and God's with us. He's with us. And now we come to Daniel 7, chapter 7 to 12, and, and, and it's not God just saying, Israel, I have you in, my, in the palm of my hands, but now it's even much more cosmic than that. He's saying, I have the whole world in my hands. As the author and creator of the world, I am authoring this story in time and place in history to not just make sense of the world, but in the end to redeem it and to restore it. I'm the king. I sit on my throne. I'm in control of all things. And I'm orchestrating everything. Kings kingdoms, emperors, empires. They're all in my hands. And that's a massive reality that we as believers ought to just rest in. So we come uh, to, to this vision in chapter 8. Again, it's a vision that God is giving Daniel um, to tell Daniel and his people because God is partnering with his people. And partners tell partners what, what, what they're about to do. God told Abraham, Abraham, you are my friend. I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do to Sodom. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do. Um, and, and because what's about to happen is going to have great bearing on God's people. And God tells Daniel through a series of, of visions. And the, the vision that he gets in chapter 8 uh, takes place earlier in Daniel's life when Babylon is still the world ruler, and Belshazzar is its king. And Daniel gets this vision of, I mean, come on, a, a lamb, or a, a, a goat, and a ram. Do those animals intimidate you? Um, they're, they're seemingly nonviolent animals, uh, but each of these animals grow these massive horns, and horn in... in in the ancient world, uh, depicts, it symbolizes power. And so in verse 3, we see that this ram grows not one, but two great horns. It's the horns that make it powerful, uh, powerful to do what it says in verse 4. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against it. None could rescue itself from its power, and it did as it as it pleased, and it became great. Then this goat arrives on the scene. Verse 5. Can anyone imagine a, a goat posing any kind of threat? But this goat has this unusually large horn between its eyes, and it's moving at such great speed, its feet aren't touching the ground. I mean, this is a hydroplaning goat, okay? You have to picture that. And with fury, it's going right towards the ram, and boom! Verse 7 says, I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. 
and the ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground, trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power, the power of this goat. Again, I, I, I don't know if you can put your, your children's lenses on to, to imagine this, so let me help you a little bit, maybe from something from our world to kind of capture uh, what is to be seen in this text. <laughs> there goes the ram right there. He's going, going. Boom! There's the goat. I so badly want to watch the replay. Do you want to watch the replay? <laughs> we could have used that last week, couldn't we? Now read verses 8 and 9. That's quite a goat. <laughs> it says, The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So picture this rack of four horns, replacing the one. And then out of one of those four horns, another horn, a little horn which started small but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. And this thing grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw down the starry hosts from the sky and trampled on them, and it set itself up as the great commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down because of rebellion. The Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, and it prospered in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. I don't know what you, what you see, but th this is all moving. The ram to the goat with the one horn, a horn replaced, a rack of four horns with a little horn growing out of the one horn. That's where the vision needs to lead us. It's that little horn. Because it's the little horn now that also is going to start to swallow up that beautiful land. And that beautiful land, as, as said in Ezekiel 26, God says, out of all the lands in the, of the world, Israel is the most beautiful. That beautiful land is Israel, and that's what's going to be swallowed up. And not only is Israel going to be swallowed up, but uh, the temple is going to be defiled and um, overtaken by this evil. Now, Daniel is overwhelmed when he's done with this vision because, first of all, there's some amazing things that are assumed in this vision, starting with the beautiful land. That means that God's people, his people, are going to be back in the land. God's going to restore them. And not only are they going to be restored to the land, but God's house. God's going to live amongst us again. Daniel would have been overwhelmed with joy. But then the troubling aspect of this is, is all of that is to take place. There is this evil that is going to just be unleashed on God's people, in God's house, upon God himself, the host of heaven. And so David is, Daniel's overwhelmed. And verse 14 has a clue too. It talks about the 2300 morning and evenings. That's uh, a reference morning and evening to the morning and evening sacrifice 
uh, 2,300 sacrifices. Uh, so if you cut that in half, because there's two a day, um, and then do the math, that translates to three years. Three years. Where evil will reign in God's house. And Daniel is troubled. And as he's troubled, um, verses 15 and 16, we didn't read this, but um, in that troubled state, it says, one like a man. And we learned last week, one like a son of man is a reference to Christ. <laughs> so this, this here, it's here again in chapter 8, one like a man. You have Christ then saying to Gabriel, now it feels like we're in Christmas, this archangel of his, and I love the name Gabriel, that's why we named our firstborn son Gabriel, because one time Gabriel says, he says, I stand in the presence of God to do his bidding. And here Daniel is standing in the presence of Christ to do Christ's bidding, and Christ says, go to Daniel and explain the vision that he just had. And so what we have in Daniel 8, I think, is so helpful uh, because not only do we have this apocalyptic vision, but we also have its interpretation from Christ himself. So there's no wiggle room to, to take this imagery and just run it to our world because people like to do some things like, you know, that goat is Russia and this ram is, I mean, this is what people do can't do that here so let's look at the interpretation verse 20 the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of media and persia and we read about this in, in daniel chapter 5 um, remember many many tackle up harson uh, when the babylonian king is feasting with his elites, and all of a sudden, boom, they're taken out by the king of Persia uh, on, on that dreadful night. Persia, or the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, is, is an empire that lasted for 200 years. Let me just uh, show you a PowerPoint really quickly. Um, there are two colors on this map. There's a brown and a tan, so you have to look very closely uh, the brown is in the middle there representing the Babylonian Empire at its height. And the, Meda, Meda Persia, the Media Persian Empire is all the brown and the tan. And you can see it's almost like three times as great. Awesome empire. And we saw how this was assumed already in Daniel's vision that God's people returned to the beautiful land and, and how God's house is restored and, and even sacrifices and worship are, are going on to God in that place. Um, that all happened under the first king of Persia, Cyrus. In fact, I'll take you to a text in Isaiah. Isaiah 44 the last verse says, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please through him. And he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of God's temple, let its foundation be laid. Because this is what the Lord says to his anointed, his Messiah, Messiah to Cyrus. 
whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. In other words, what this text is basically saying, all the great kings and kingdoms and emperors and empires are really nothing more than puppets in which God, the great puppet master, is just orchestrating whatever he wants through them. Do you know that today? Because this reality alone ought to put every Christian's heart at ease. God has it. He sits on his throne and he is in control. So as I said, this ram ruled for two centuries until the arrival of the goat. And what's the goat? Well, just look at verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes, which is its power, is its first king. And if you know history, in 334 B.C., this 22-year-old king of Greece, Alexander, who we know as Alexander the Great, set out to attack Persia. In fact, scholars say that he was outnumbered 20 to 1 on the battlefield. But he hits them with such lightning speed that the goat crushes the ram, and in 10 short years, Alexander conquers all of Persia and even expands on that even more. And the next year, the 11th, as he's in Babylon, preparing to make Babylon his great capital of his great empire, Alexander the Great dies. How ironic. Alexander the Great dying in the great city of Babylon. Now, here's what you need to know about Alexander. Alexander did not just set out to conquer the world. He wanted to convert the world. He wanted to Hellenize it. He wanted to Westernize it. Because Alexander the Great was more than a warrior. Alexander the Great was raised in classical Greece. His tutor was Aristotle. And through all of this, uh, Alexander was convinced that classical Greece provided a far superior product than any other culture in the world. So here's what he did. As he conquered, he would plant cities along the way, Greek cities, proclaiming the gospel of Hellenism. He would leave um, a contingent of soldiers with a huge wad of cash, and he would instruct them, now Build a Greek city here with all the institutions of Greece. Uh, Temples to our Greek gods. Stadiums, arenas, theaters, spas, uh, shopping malls, Starbucks, McDonald's. Start building, guys. Obviously, Starbucks and McDonald's weren't a part of that, but that's what it was. Because here's what Alexander the Great thought. He thought... Once the world gets a taste of Hellenism, they're going to fall in love with it. Now, what's Hellenism? Hellenism is humanism. It's it's Protagoras' maxim that man is the measure of all things. In Hellenism, the human mind is the standard of what's true. 
The human body is the standard of what's beautiful. Human achievement is the standard of success. Hellenism is all about the individual. It's what the individual can accomplish, how well the individual can perform, how, how beautiful an individual can look, what an individual can create. It's all about me. It's all about you. Now, another name for Hellenism, and this is a, a modern name, is Darwinism. Because Hellenism is survival of the fittest, the strongest, the prettiest, the smartest. It's, 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 a, it's a worldview that exalts the powerful, the strong, the talented, uh, the, the beautiful, and it's all at the expense of the poor, the weak, the less fortunate, the ugly. And this reality right here ought to bring every follower of Christ to tears. Because you know what I just described. I described our world. And we live in the West. And, he, and here's, here's, here's what happened. What happened is when Alexander the Great came and brought the gospel of Hellenism from the west to the east. About 300 years after that, the apostle Paul and the apostles from the east went, well with the, went west with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they converted Hellenism to Christ. And it was redeemed. But now, in our post-Christian Western culture, we are reverting back to Hellenism at its finest. You know what's evil to, an, to a Hellenist? It's not sexual immorality, are you kidding me? It's part of their worship of the gods. It's not a lot of things that we would say are evil. What's evil to a Hellenist is imperfection. It's any kind of weakness. Evil is having a deficiency. It's having a disability. It's, it's, it's growing old. That's Hellenism. And what is so normal to us, you have to understand to that eastern world when that goat came in and took out the ram uh, with this lightning speed, it was like they were invaded by Martians. They had never seen, I'm not talking just a people that look different from them, but I'm talking about a culture and stadiums and arenas and theaters and, and shopping malls. It was foreign to them. Now, when Alexander died at the young age of 33, his empire was divided among his four top leading generals, thus the imagery of the one horn being broken off and, and, and these, this rack of four horns. And you can read about this in verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, um, but not all have the same power. Because one of them did grow stronger. And let me just uh, 
quickly show you a PowerPoint of this. So here are the four nations, the one in the middle, Antigonus. That actually, this map represents a little bit later time. Um, that should be all Lysimachus, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucid. And you can see Seleucus is bigger. And that's because also in 170 B.C., led by their king Antichus Epiphanes, Seleucus attacked Ptolemy. And in that attack, he annexed much of the land, including Israel, that beautiful land, which is in our text. But this is what Antichus Epiphanes realized. He realized that he had a problem child in those Jews because these Jews resisted his Hellenism that he thought they would fall in love with. But he didn't understand that the Jewish people had no category for a Darwinistic view of the world. That they were a people who remained true to their God. And that God laid out for them a walk that was distinctive from the world, especially Hellenism. So this so infuriated Antichus Epiphanes that in 168 he unleashed a holocaust on them. And a lot of this is described in First and Second Maccabees, books that are in our Catholic Bible but not our Protestant Bibles that we call the Apocrypha. And I think it's in uh, Maccabees chapter 6. It, is, it says this, Antichus, raging like a wild animal, he set out from, a, from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those who they met and slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of old and young, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a torturous death, and that same number being sold into slavery. That's what's prophesied. On top of this, Antichus uh, made the reading of Torah, <laughs> the book. He made the practice of Sabbath and, and the celebration of the Jewish feast. And, and circumcision, all punishable, usually by a torturous death. Thousands of Jews were tortured to death by Antichus Epiphanes. In fact, he declared war on God himself by going into God's house. He raped it of all its furniture, and he, took, he placed a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and he sacrificed pigs to uh, Zeus, and he took the blood from the pigs, and he plastered it on every one of the walls of every room in that temple to defile it. And the defiling didn't stop there, because the worship of the pagan gods was oftentimes sexual. So he brought in the prostitutes with the orgies there in the God's house. In fact, uh, interesting... His name is Antichus. His title is Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. Because that's how he saw himself. In fact, he saw himself as the manifestation, the physical, uh, the incarnation of, of Zeus himself. Which is why when that sacrifice in God's place is to Zeus, it's actually to Antichus. But one day, Antichus picked the wrong village to bring his soldiers in with a statue of himself uh, and forcing those villagers to, to worship that statue. 
because there was a man in that village with five sons. His name was Matthias, and he put a stake in the ground that day, and he defied those soldiers and said, I will not worship that pig. And on that day, a revolution started. And one of his five sons was Judas, called the hammer, which is the word Maccabee in Hebrew, Judas Maccabees, who became like this Messiah because it was a David and Goliath all over again. This itty-bitty people group taking on this great world empire. And they scratched and they clawed. And three years later, or 2,300 sacrifices later, they defeated Antiochus, his empire, and, and pushed them out of the land. And the little horn was no more. In fact, one of the cool uh, parts of this story is that when they finally made it into Jerusalem, and then when they finally made it into God's house, the temple, and, and, and they, they cleansed it, and they got rid of all the worship of, of, of Zeus in that place, um, they wanted to find the menorah, which they did, and they wanted to light that menorah, and what they found was only one vial of kosher oil that would allow that lamp to burn for one day, but they lit it anyways because that signified the presence of God. And miraculously, that lamp b- burned for eight days, and then they knew God is back in his house. And this all happened on December 25, and that's the start of the Feast of Hanukkah. This is what Hanukkah celebrates. And I don't know if you know this, but Hanukkah is in our Bibles, in the life of Jesus, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10. We call it the Feast of Dedication, but in the Hebrew, it's the Feast of Hanukkah. Um, And it's interesting that at this feast, what's the question they ask Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Show us that you're the Messiah. Show us that you're the hammer. That like Judas Maccabees of old, you're going to be this Messiah that's going to come and, and, and take on these Romans and drive them out because this is the hope. And why is this the hope? Because although Judah the hammer drove out the Greeks and for a hundred years Israel became an independent state with a Jewish king on the throne, yet in those hundred years something tragic happened. Uh, the Jews became more Greek than the Greeks they drove out. And the Romans had to come in and just figure this whole thing out. It was easy for them to take over. And so imagine, because this is the context of our New Testament, when this descendant of David arrives on the scene, going from village to village, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. But here's the deal, and this is what the Jewish people could never understand. Jesus is the Messiah, but he didn't come to the world to be The hammer. I mean, in football, we often say to our players, don't be the nail, be the hammer. Don't be the guy that's crushed. Be the one who's doing the crushing. 
And Jesus did not come, though, to the world to be the hammer. He came to the world to be the nail, to be the one crushed. Because Jesus came not to be this lion of Judah, but to be the Lamb of God. And his victory is not over Romans, and it's not over Greeks or Persians or Babylonians. It's deeper than that. The, 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 the powers and the forces and all these geopolitical realities uh, underneath them uh, is a dragon, to use the imagery of apocalyptic literature. A snake going all the way back to the garden. And Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this unseen world. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. And Jesus came to the world to defeat that enemy, to take on that dragon. And the way that he won was really by being defeated. Not by being this ferocious lion, but by being a lamb slaughtered. It's not a goat that wins. It's not uh, a ram that wins. It's not a lion that wins. It's, it's a lamb. A slaughtered lamb. And Paul says this, this is a stumbling block uh, to the Greeks. It's, it's, well, no, he says it's foolishness to the Greeks. He says it's stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who are being saved, it's the very wisdom of God. Because God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. It's the victory of God. But what does this mean for us? It means a lot. It means what I've already been telling you. It means that when we look at our world and, and all the things that we see going on in our world and its upheaval, that we as believers, we can rest in our minds, we can be at ease in our hearts, knowing that our God is on the throne, and he is in control of all things, all kings, all empires, and he's orchestrating it all for his purposes. And his purposes are to redeem this broken, messed up world. And that's why when, so, when I hear so many Christians bemoaning our world today, listen, we as believers should be dancing. Because we're literally watching the city of man crumble. Hollywood is crumbling. D.C. is crumbling. Sport is crumbling. And listen, our hope as Christians is not in these things. This is Hellenism. That's number one. Be at ease. Number two, be a Daniel. Be a Maccabee. Let's not worship the idols of Hellenism. Let's not bow to the idols of Babylon. In fact, let's have the guts and the courage to acknowledge them in our lives and to repent of them. Because I'll tell you, one of the great joys of the last two years of my life, it's that recent, is repentance. I used to look at repentance as something like, ah, okay, this is something I'm supposed to do. Repentance is, is, is such a beautiful, joyful, setting free kind of thing when you can come to a place and realize, 
my life has gotten so off track in this area, in this area, and I can acknowledge that, and I can repent, I can turn back to God, I can experience all over the Father running to me, wrapping his arms around me, kissing me, embracing me, and setting me back on the path that I need to be on. Martin Luther's first theses that he knocked on the wit attached to the Wittenberg door was, all of life is repentance. Let's repent. Number three, Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. He says, look, the reason the world hates you is because it hated me first. He says, but take heart, I will overcome the world. I think the thing, the area where a Christian today is, is most distinct from the rest of the world, how we stand out the most, it's in the area of suffering. It's our view of suffering. It's how we respond to suffering. Um, it, it, it's, it makes us incredibly distinct. William Williman, who was uh, once a professor at uh, Duke Divinity School, before that he was a pastor, and he, in a book, recounts a visit he made to a couple while he was a pastor who were in the hospital. The woman just delivered a baby and it was not doing well. Sh shortly after he arrived, the doctor entered, saying to the parents, you have a new baby boy, but there's some problems. Your new baby boy has been born with Down syndrome. But then he said, he said, your baby also has a rather minor and correctable respiratory condition. My recommendation, a very Hellenistic one, is for you to consider just letting nature take its course and then in a few days there shouldn't be a problem. And the couple seemed confused by what the doctor told them and so the husband said, if this condition can be corrected, we absolutely want it corrected. The doctor said, but you must understand that studies show that parents who keep these children have a high incident of marital distress and separation. Is it fair for you and for your ch two children to, uh, have to have to undergo this kind of suffering? And Williman writes that at the moment of the mention of the word suffering, the mother seemed to finally understand. She said, you know, our children have had every advantage in the world. They've never really known suffering. They've never had the opportunity to know it. And I don't know if God's hand is in this or not, but I could certainly see why it would make perfect sense for a child like this to be born into a family like ours, and our children will be just fine. In fact, when you think about it, this will be an incredible opportunity for our family. And the doctor looked absolutely perplexed. He looked at Williman, the pastor. He said, I hope you could pump some reason into them. And Williman then writes, the couple was using reason. It was just a reason foreign to the doctor. For me, it was a vivid example of the church at its best, teaching a different language from that of the world. Because in Christ, words like, words like suffering and pain, which are utterly negative, take on a whole new meaning. Suffering for the believer is not bad. It's redemptive. Think about the cross. I mean, you... You talk about the narrative reaching such a low point. 
And just think of the despair of those disciples that next day. It's just like, it's done. It's over. Not knowing that what man intended for evil, God was using not just for good, but the greatest good ever unleashed on the face of the earth. You know what alchemy is? Alchemy was the attempt in the Middle Ages by chemists to turn lead, something that was worthless and useless, into gold, something beautiful and, and, and valuable. That's who God is. God's the only alchemist. He's the only one who can turn lead into gold. He can turn our ashes into beauty. He can take all the bad situations and, and, and the bad things in our life, whether it be furnaces or lion's dens or persecutions or even crucifixions, and out of it bring redemption and resurrection. You know this. Because this is how we as believers are different than the world. Because when you, as I said to John and Rosa, push suffering into a blood-bought follower of Christ, what comes out is stunningly beautiful. I've seen it in so many people at Crossroads. The lion didn't become a lamb so that we could then become lions, but so that we could live like lambs in our lion world. Let's pray. God, teach us to drop the sword. Teach us to stop trusting ourselves. Help us to repent of Hellenism. Help us to become like the Lamb of God. The Lamb slaughtered. And help us to know that in our little itty-bitty lives, the same truth holds true. That the way you brought life and redemption into this world was not through a ram or a goat or even a lion, but it was through a lamb. May we be lambs. Amen. Crossroads, thank you so much. Like I can just look around this room right now and just see so many people who have suffered so well, making Christ look so beautiful. Let's go out now as lambs and live like our Savior, putting, out, putting him on display. Have a great week.